profit. His bank was the Third National of Philadelphia, located in that center of all Philadelphia, and indeed, at that time, of practically all national finance, Third Street, and its owners conducted a brokerage business as a sideline. There was a perfect plague of state banks, great and small in those days, issuing notes practically without regulation upon insecure and unknown assets, and failing and suspending with astonishing rapidity. And a knowledge of all those was an important requirement of Mr. Copperwood's position. As a result, he had become the soul of caution. Unfortunately for him, he lacked in a great measure the two things that are necessary for distinction in any field— magnetism and vision. He was not destined to be a great financier, though he was marked out to be a moderately successful one. Mrs. Copperwood was of a religious temperament, a small woman with light brown hair and clear brown eyes, who had been very attractive in her day, but had become rather prim and matter-of-fact, and inclined to take very seriously the maternal care of her three sons and one daughter. The former, captained by Frank, the eldest, were a source of considerable annoyance to her, for they were forever making expeditions to different parts of the city, getting in with bad boys, probably, and seeing and hearing things they should neither see nor hear. Frank Copperwood, even at ten, was a natural-born leader. At the day school he attended, and later at the central high school, he was looked upon as one whose common sense could unquestionably be trusted in all cases. He was a sturdy youth, courageous and defiant. From the very start of his life, he wanted to know about economics and politics. He cared nothing for books. He was a clean, stocky, shapely boy with a bright, clean-cut, incisive face large, clear gray eyes, a wide forehead, short, bristly, dark brown hair. He had an incisive, quick-motioned, self-sufficient manner, and was forever asking questions with a keen desire for an intelligent reply. He never had an ache or pain, ate his food with gusto, and ruled his brothers with a rod of iron. "'Come on, Joe! Hurry, Ed!' These commands were issued in no rough, but always a sure way, and Joe and Ed came. They looked up to Frank from the first as a master, and what he had to say was listened to eagerly. He was forever pondering, pondering, one fact astonishing to him quite as much as another, for he could not figure out how this thing he had come into, this life, was organized. How did all these people get into the world? What were they doing here? who started things anyhow. His mother told him the story of Adam and Eve, but he didn't believe it. There was a fish market not so very far from his home, and there, on his way to see his father at the bank, or conducting his brothers on after-school expeditions, he liked to look at a certain tank in front of one store where were kept odd specimens of sea life brought in by the Delaware Bay fishermen. He saw once there was a seahorse, just a queer little sea animal that looked somewhat like a horse, and another time he saw an electric eel, which Benjamin Franklin's discovery had explained. One day he saw a squid and a lobster put in the tank, and in connection with them was witness to a tragedy which stayed with him all his life and cleared things up considerably intellectually. The lobster, it appeared from the talk of the idle bystanders, was offered no food, as the squid was considered his rightful prey. He lay at the bottom of the clear glass tank on the yellow sand, apparently seeing nothing. 
You could not tell in which way his beady black buttons of eyes were looking, but apparently they were never off the body of the squid. The latter, pale and waxy in texture, looking very much like pork fat or jade, moved about in torpedo fashion. But his movements were apparently never out of the eyes of his enemy, for by degrees small portions of his body began to disappear, snapped off by the relentless claws of his pursuer. The lobster would leap like a catapult to where the squid was apparently idly dreaming, and the squid, very alert, would dart away, shooting out at the same time a cloud of ink, behind which it would disappear. It was not always completely successful, however. Small portions of its body or its tail were frequently left in the claws of the monster below. Fascinated by the drama, young Copperwood came daily to watch. One morning he stood in front of the tank, his nose almost pressed to the glass. Only a portion of the squid remained, and his ink bag...